sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the recently resolved teacher strike in Columbus, Ohio. Also going to be talking about yet another aid delivery to Ukraine by the Biden administration. Also going to be talking about new protests happening inside Haiti. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, Stanford University has a program dedicated to the study of the Internet, the Internet Observatory Cyber Policy Center, to be specific, that has produced a study called Unheard Voice, evaluating five years of pro-Western covert influence operations, which analyzed a large network of accounts that were removed from Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for pro-Western misinformation. No coverage of this in corporate media. Interesting. The study, however, conducted in conjunction with the social media analytics firm Graphica, found that the information operation likely originated in Guessware, the United States, and constituted a, quote, series of covert campaigns over a period of almost five years that pushed pro-Western misinformation on social media platforms targeting people living in Central Asia and the Middle East. East. They note that the campaigns they analyzed consistently advanced narratives promoting the interests of the United States and its allies while opposing countries including Russia, China, and Iran. Now, some of the covert accounts linked to articles from fake media outlets to spread misinformation, but not all of them. Some accounts frequently linked to stories from U.S. government-funded sources like the U.S. Central Command, that's right, the U.S. military, and Voice of America. What kind of misinformation did they spread or try to spread, you ask? Well... The report details that the operation targeted Russian-speaking Central Asian audiences and focused on praising American aid to Central Asia and heavily criticizing Russia, particularly its foreign policy. Two assets concentrated on China and the treatment of Chinese Muslim minorities, particularly the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. And these accounts, a fake persona and a sham media outlet, mainly focused on the genocide of Uyghurs and Muslim minorities in re-education camps in Xinjiang. Posts described alleged organ trafficking, forced labor, sexual crimes against Muslim women, and suspicious disappearances of ethnic Muslims in Xinjiang. The assets also posted about the Chinese Communist Party's poor treatment of women in the country and often framed these stories around news about domestic violence. The assets pushed at least four petitions on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. One call for Kazakhstan to leave the Collective Security Treaty Organization. A second demanded that Kyrgyzstan curb Chinese influence in the country. And the last two called on the Kazakh government to ban Russian TV channels. Three of these petitions were launched on the U.S. nonprofit petition platform Avaz, and one was posted on the Kazakh website Alash. 
Remember that the APSP properties in Fort Lauderdale and St. Louis were raided by the FBI a few weeks ago in part because they were allegedly influenced by what the FBI says is a Russian agent to create a change.org petition to present charges of genocide against the United States at the United Nations on behalf of African peoples, something that, remember, I pointed out black people have actually already done twice. You want to know what else they said? Of course you do. Other posts argued that the U.S. was the main guarantor of Central Asia's sovereignty against Russia, frequently citing the war in Ukraine as evidence of the Kremlin's imperial ambitions. These posts often warned of Russia's imperialist ambitions toward the former Soviet states and said the invasion of Ukraine showed what the Kremlin was capable of doing to its neighboring countries. Listen, y'all. If there's a U.S.-based propaganda campaign centered around these ideas of an imperialist Kremlin and Russian imperialism and Ukraine is Russia's imperialist war, then anyone on the U.S. left who parrots these ideas is, guess what, parroting U.S. imperialist propaganda. And I don't know how many times we got to say this, but I guess it's nice to have some proof to back it up now. The assets frequently referred to China's cooperation with Russia, especially on military issues, and said that Beijing should be held responsible for Russia's invasion of Ukraine because the CCP had secretly supplied the Kremlin with weapons. But not a peep about the billions of dollars openly sent to Ukraine by the U.S. and its Western allies to fight this immoral proxy war against Russia, and nothing about the growing aggression toward China using Taiwan by U.S. politicians. None of that. Just punish China for supporting Russia. Iran was also targeted in the campaign, with anti-government accounts criticizing the country's domestic and international policies and highlighting how the government's costly international interventions undermined its ability to care for its citizens. Post claimed that the government took food from Iranians to give to Hezbollah. One Instagram post said that by supporting Hamas and Hezbollah, the late Qasem Soleimani had brought poverty and misery to Iran. Not a word about U.S. sanctions against Iran, nothing about the assassination of General Soleimani, just the typical U.S. talking points about the evil Iranian regime. The study's executive summary notes that the activity they analyzed, quote, represents the most extensive case of covert pro-Western influence operations on social media to be reviewed and analyzed by open source researchers to date, end quote. But they also say that the data also shows the limitations of using inauthentic tactics to generate engagement and build influence online. They say that because the vast majority of posts and tweets they reviewed received no more than a handful of likes or retweets, and only 19% of the covert accounts had more than 1,000 followers, the impact of this covert misinformation campaign was limited. Two things here. I think that in itself is a damning condemnation of the claims of Russian meddling or influence in U.S. elections, because if the U.S., with its vast resources and technologies, can't 
penetrate the global social media sphere to spread its misinformation. Despite their best efforts for five years now, all they could get was a thousand followers on just 19% of their fake accounts. What in the world makes us believe that Russia could somehow influence a whole election in this country with some Facebook posts, most of which were posted after the election and most of which were advertisements for products like shoes? And the second, and perhaps most important, is that if the U.S. is carrying out a covert social media campaign to spread these specific talking points and these particular ideas about certain countries and governments around the world, this report should be a big clue to you that these talking points are exactly what they are identified as, U.S.-propagated misinformation. They're lies. The U.S. and its Western allies are meddling in everyone else's freedom around the world. And it's high time we call it what it is, imperialism that must be stopped. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political Social and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Shinbi G, a Columbus, Ohio based artist and organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Shinbi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Shimbi, the Columbus, Ohio Teachers Union and the Columbus Board of Education have uh, reached uh, what's being called a conceptual agreement, which ends uh, a strike that's been going on amongst the teachers and then will allow students to be able to return to classrooms Monday, to my understanding. And I was hoping you could help us understand uh, just what happened here uh, with this strike. You know, what were the teachers demanding? and sort of how things unfolded from there. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, at around 2.48 a.m. this morning, uh, they reached a, like you said, a conceptual agreement um, that will be voted on this weekend by the union um, to uh, ratify a new contract. Now, the Columbus Education Association, which is the union that represents um, 4,500 uh, teachers and also some librarians, counselors, and nurses and other school employees, you know, they, they've been fighting this fight for a while. This is the first fight, uh, the strike they've had uh, since 1975. So, you know, it's a really big deal. Um, the, the city, um, I, I wouldn't say we weren't prepared for it because many of us um, were certainly standing in solidarity with the teachers, but the media was quite shocked, and um, there was a lot of uh, public solidarity and pushback. Um, the board had, you know, been throwing out some uh, half-baked agreements that um, did not meet the teacher standards. And so, like I said, for the first time since 1975, the teachers, um, by 94% vote, uh, voted to reject this. Uh, the final offer and voted to strike. 
And uh, from the teacher's perspective or what they said about the strike, they said that the strike was about students and not wages. So what were the specific reasons that uh, teachers in Columbus took this unprecedented uh, 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 action in uh in response to issues that they say are surrounded uh, are about students' needs? For sure. Students are definitely um, were the priority of the strike. The teachers have been noticing and being very vocal about the conditions that students are facing. You know, there are classrooms with black mold. There are classrooms that have no air conditioning and are reaching 98 degrees um, during, you know, August, late September, like all, all these times of the year where the temperature in the classroom isn't safe for students. You know, in the winter, they have freezing temperatures. Um, there's no central air conditioning or heating units in tons of different schools. Leaky um, ceilings, paint chipping. There, There's all these problems that when you go into a classroom, this isn't going to be an environment where you feel safe, an environment where you feel like you can focus on learning. Um, so when they say they had the students in mind, it, it very much is. Um, it, this also goes towards classroom sizes. You know, they're trying to create more personal and um, better educational environments. And you can do that when you have a classroom of 30 students and only one teacher. So they also fought for smaller class sizes and building a well-rounded uh, curriculum as well. They were fighting for full-time art, music, and PE teachers in elementary schools so that every child had the opportunity to learn and grow. And when we look at 1975, one of the principal struggles was around pay. But like you said, this time they made it very clear that this is about students and fighting for for students. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I feel like the uh, the the pandemic really showed a lot about a number of issues that face uh, teachers and students in a number of ways, Shimbi. And I mean, what's clear is that when we see how uh, governments at different levels uh, within the U.S. sort of deal uh, with the school issue uh, to the point that we've been speaking to, it, it just never seems that the actual well-being of the students is a, a real what's at the top of the list of priorities. I mean, the fact that something as basic as heating and air is even an issue to raise um, uh, is pretty uh, wild to me. And the fact that um, uh, the leadership of these different governments um, uh, don't seem to have much of an idea of the impact that this has on the actual quality of education that the students have, I think just uh, uh, says a lot about, you know, how they really uh, conceive of these schools, because even though, you know, everybody, you know, talks about education and how much they care about students and things like this, I think it's noteworthy that uh, it took a sort of a real labor struggle on behalf of the teachers to not only raise these issues, but to get them remedied uh, on behalf of their students. And this is not uh, uh, the first sort of struggle or strike that we've seen uh, a teacher's wage here in uh, uh, this most recent period. And so just just uh, even broadly speaking, Shambi, it just seems clear that this kind of uh, labor struggle is what's going to be necessary to really fight for uh, the rights of students, for families, for communities and for teachers themselves, which I think uh, could also be said for, you know, different uh, uh, wings of the labor movement as well. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I think 
uh, the teachers have really shown that um, collective action is what brings real change. Um, for the past 50 years, they've been at the bargaining table. You know, when they struck in 75, a, they had a court order shut it down, and then Ohio got the right to collective bargaining in 83 for public employees. And since then, they've been going back and forth across the table. And the teachers saw what that's brought them. You know, there are these conditions that students are facing, and it's unacceptable. They know it. The community knows it. And so the teachers stood up. They fought that. And I think that's kind of uh, what workers across the U.S. are, are facing, the fact that there are these conditions and that it only will take collective action to, uh, to solve the, the issues that they face. You know, I think looking at the, the teachers in Chicago has been a great example of, and Denver too, when teachers stand up and fight back through collective action, the students are, are benefited. And that's also shown by um, the fact that a mass number of students did not cross the virtual picket line. They sat out. They supported the teachers. The school made some excuse and said, oh, we don't have the numbers ready. You know, we can't say for Wednesday, yesterday, uh, August 24th, you know, how many students attend. We need to compile those numbers. But from personal reports, Tons of students sat out, and those that did had to face long hours of waiting to get into classrooms because the school wasn't ready. Students are affected, and the teachers as workers are standing up and not just fighting for themselves, but for the students and for the community. You know, as workers, I think um, they're really showing what's possible when you stand up and fight back. And that showed in three days of strike, they were able to force the board to reach this conceptual agreement. Something that uh, hasn't happened in, in 50 years. Wow. Yeah. So it's literally historic in that way. And I appreciate you raising the um, participation of the students who uh, clearly want to have a hand in how their own education operates. And, you know, in a broader sense, Shinbi, I'm wondering if the situation with the Columbus teachers, I mean, do, do you see that as connected to uh, broader issues facing uh, poor and working people inside uh, of the city of Columbus? I mean, I mean, do you think it's indicative at all uh, of how conditions are going inside the city, or do you see this as a particular to the education issue? I think it speaks more broadly. Um, you know, Columbus is rapidly growing. I believe it's um, one of the fastest growing cities in the Midwest region. Corporations are piling in um, for tax benefits. We have Amazon facility here. We have Microsoft, Intel, um, money being poured into the city, and yet children are going to school surrounded by rats and roaches. You know, the Columbus police, um, are getting $354 million in the 2022 proposed budget. And like I said, kids are being surrounded by horrible issues. You know, the priorities are um, the city is absolutely prioritizing profit over the well-being of the people and the well-being of the youth. Um, Columbus is a very diverse city and Columbus is also a leading uh, city in terms of policing against the black community. Um, Columbus kills an unprecedented amount of black youth. It's, it's a level of 
terrorism against the black community that not only extends from on the street, but into the classroom. And we're seeing that in the schools that went on strike. Out of the six high schools, three of them are majority black. You know, this is um, a level of class warfare and warfare against the black community. And that's really indicative of Columbus, especially in terms of the gentrifying that's going on and in terms of how the city itself is carved out through redlining. This is uh, absolutely connected to the labor struggle and the racial justice movement. Um, And I think the teachers are showing, you know, that every single sector in the city is connected to this fight. Yeah, definitely. And how do you see the success of the teachers in Columbus impacting other uh, movements, labor movements, teacher movements across the country? Do you see this uh, spreading, especially as schools, of course, are about to open up again and students are uh, once again facing going into uh, these classrooms that not only face longstanding structural and infrastructure issues, but also are still dealing with the ongoing mismanagement of the pandemic. I, I think it's very early in, in seeing how this may inspire, but I, I, I think it will, especially due to the fact uh, of the unprecedented nature of this happening, you know, a historic um, fight going on. And the fact that in three days of strike, they, they were able to force the board to do, to like resolve that meeting and to get, their agreements met. I would not be surprised if other schools follow. Um, back in 75, when Columbus teachers struck in the uh, early months, um, Jackson County followed later on. This will undoubtedly spread. And I think, especially as we look at um, the growing industry in Columbus, we're also seeing um, the Starbucks union wave spread. Um, We have multiple stores here in Columbus uh, unionizing. And um, I think for every organizer and activist, learning from the teachers and hearing their stories and how they connect to the community and and, and how they have done this uh, historic fight is going to be really essential, especially uh, seeing as how they won now. We'll, we'll have to wait and see how quickly the school implements those changes and how the, the children's safety and health can be um, rapidly uh, improved in the classroom. I, I have no doubt that the teachers would continue fighting um, if, if the, the school doesn't carry out its promises, especially in this pandemic time where, you know, people say we're in a post-COVID period, which is absolutely not true. Um, we're still seeing COVID spread and children are are tired of going to online school. There's so many reports of children saying, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be in the classroom. And teachers are also leading that fight. They say, we need more nurses. We need smaller class sizes. They're fighting for ways to get kids back in the room, but keeping them healthy and safe. And I think that's going to be important looking uh, to other groups around the city and how we can not only ensure our own health, but the community's health and the health of the children. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Shenby, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. 
by any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about even more military aid being sent to Ukraine by the United States. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dan Kavalik, an adjunct professor of international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law and the author of No More War, How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to Advance Economic and Strategic Interests. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Dan, uh, the United States government has announced uh, nearly three billion more dollars in new military aid to Ukraine with uh, Joe Biden, of course, the president of the U.S., saying that this um, aid is being sent in order to help Kiev defend uh, against uh, Russia, quote, over the long term. And uh, Biden also said in a statement that uh, Kiev using this aid uh, would be allowed to acquire, quote, artillery systems and munitions, counter unmanned aerial systems and radars. And so, I mean, at this point, Dan, it just seems like these just massive infusions of aid and and billions and billions of dollars to Ukraine from the U.S. are are pretty fairly routine, even if it uh, doesn't appear to be having uh, much of an impact in terms of what's actually happening on the ground in terms of the war. I mean, it really does seem that uh, uh, Russia is sort of uh, grinding its its advances forward and all of these sorts of things. And so I'm just wondering uh, how you're sort of seeing that this ongoing infusion of aid and why Washington is so intent on uh, ascending it, uh, uh, even when it doesn't seem to be that effective. Yeah, well, I think it is effective to this extent. I think the goal of the United States is, and well, we know this, you know, the uh, Secretary of Defense uh, uh, Lloyd Austin said this. I mean, the goal is to keep this war going to weaken and undermine Russia. So the goal isn't necessarily to win the war, because that's probably impossible, as you point out. But the, the aid can keep the war going indefinitely, and that's the goal. It's just like the goal in Afghanistan originally in the 70s and 80s was to use Afghanistan to uh, you know, drain the Soviet Union of its resources, which worked very well. Uh, the same is happening here. So, so from that point of view, the money is effective. It's also effective, of course, in that a lot of it goes into defense contractor coffers, which, of course, uh, the government is always happy to do. And I guess the third way in which it's being used, this money, is to continue essentially to uh, make appearances. You know, the U.S., which is uh, been pumping the American people with propaganda for so long against Russia, um, in which apparently has the support of the American people to send this aid, by the way. It looked like the last poll I showed, I saw showed that like 70% of Americans support giving more military aid to Ukraine. And of course they do because 
you know, they've been subjected to this propaganda for so long. I think to keep appearances, the U.S. has to keep giving weight uh, uh, to show or at least pretend that it really supports Ukraine. And again, it doesn't support Ukraine. It just wants to use Ukraine uh, to undermine Russia. Yeah, and, you know, the American uh, consciousness about uh, where this money is going, what it's being used for, as opposed to what we are getting, I think we are at a very interesting point in time where, you know, we have people celebrating this $10,000 or $20,000 for Pell Grants, a student loan forgiveness, as, as, you know, as if that is a an earth-shattering, groundbreaking thing that the Biden administration does, uh, while the administration simultaneously announces another $3 billion uh, that's going to be sent to Ukraine for weapons to fight this war in the long term, now that they say. And this is just a few a, a few days after Washington has announced an additional $775 million in military aid to Kiev. This uh, was announced by U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, saying that the Biden administration is committed to helping Ukraine for as long as it takes. So, I mean, how do you think the how, how long do you think this um lack of, of connecting the dots in the American consciousness as far as economics, the economics of supporting this war is going to last, Dan, considering we are in a recession, no matter what the Biden administration wants to call it. Well, I'd like to believe that it would end soon, that, you know, that people would wake up to the fact that money is just going out the door for a futile effort in Ukraine. While, yes, people in this country don't have housing, they don't have health care. They continue to have huge uh, education debts. But I guess history has shown me that uh, the American people can tolerate a lot of that sort of thing. You know, we spend almost a trillion dollars a year anyway on the military, on wars. We spend trillions of dollars on the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which didn't make us safer. You know, we spent over a trillion dollars in Afghanistan alone, took 20 years to replace the Taliban with the Taliban, and yet the American people don't raise much of a peep about it. Uh, you don't have much of a peace movement. And as you say, the, the people aren't connecting the dots, but that money that's going out the door could be used here and should be used here. And yet you, you hear very few people saying that, and certainly very few people in Congress. So I guess uh, my own... Uh, you know, uh, prediction is that this could go on for a long time. Yeah, and I think you're you're right about that, Dan. That's my impression as well. Not only because the U.S. and the West uh, definitely want to, um, you know, continue this conflict as much as possible, precisely because of what you mentioned earlier. Not out of an attempt to defeat Russia, which I think at this point they must know that they're not able to do militarily, but you know, to uh, uh, just beat back Russia little by little as much as they can, or basically just to get uh, uh, Russia caught up in this 
conflict and tie it up for as long as uh, uh, possible. And also, I mean, I was recently listening to um, some analysis of polling around the war in Ukraine within Russia and Ukraine. And, and in both countries, the people uh, seem to support their respective governments um, in the conflict. And, and therefore, it seems that uh, that this may go on uh, perhaps for the foreseeable future. I think definitely at least for the next few months that are ahead of us, Dan. And this is a conflict that has had global ramifications. I mean, we, we speak to people in and about uh, uh, the African continent Asia, the Middle East, Latin America, the Caribbean, and somehow, some way, the war in Ukraine always uh, uh, seems to come up in some form or fashion. So there are ripple effects from this that are really being felt all over the world, not, not the least of which in Ukraine, where the people there uh, stand to really face um, uh, uh, the brunt of all of this. And so it's just, uh, it almost feels like we may be heading toward a quagmire kind of moment here, uh, Dan as this conflict uh, doesn't seem like there's any real end for it on the horizon anytime soon. No, you're absolutely right. And again, I think a quagmire is what the U.S. wants. They're very happy to have quagmire uh, that Russia will fall into. And uh, I think that's very possible that will happen. I think it's very possible that the war could expand. There's now growing tensions between Serbia and Kosovo. Of course, we saw how those uh, blew up. Uh, in the 90s, um, Europe itself is a powder keg. And so, you know, this could expand. And, you, you know, when you talk about impacts being felt, they are being felt in Europe as well. I mean, you know, basically countries like Germany and the UK are preparing their people uh, to go cold this winter in order to, you know, prosecute the war and the sanctions against Russia. And again, so far, the people in those countries seem willing to endure that, that they may not for very long. So we'll see. I mean, you're going to see a lot of unrest around the world. But yeah, it has some link to what's happening uh, in Ukraine. And again, I think the U.S. is just uh, fine with that. You know, to me, I've seen over the years the U.S. go from wanting stable countries that defended their interest to deciding that it's just better off to have stateless, chaotic countries which, in which the U.S. feels it could even uh, have more control in the breach. And I think we're seeing that policy being carried out now in Ukraine and, and frankly, in the rest of Europe. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, not to make too hard of a pivot, Dan, but just thinking about the situation inside the United States and how we're also feeling those uh, uh, ripple effects here and how, you know, it's this country and this government that claims to champion human rights and things like this. I mean, you recently published um, a piece in Global Times talking about, you know, uh, judges that literally, you know, sell uh, juveniles, young people um, uh, for uh, a price. I mean, just condemning young people to uh, uh, incarceration, basically, so they could get a financial kickback. And although you're only talking about uh, one situation in Pennsylvania, I mean, this is something that we've seen um, over the last few years. 
is uh, in this country. And so, I mean, it just seems to me that the U.S. really has no moral leg to stand on when it comes to wagging its finger at other countries in terms of democracy and human rights. But, you know, to me, this is part and parcel of this uh, imperial hubris that we call American exceptionalism. And so the U.S. goes all around the world really policing the earth and telling them the proper uh, uh, way to operate while absolutely refusing to critically address uh, the myriad social, political and economic issues here. Well, at the same time, and I think more American people are becoming aware of this, sending all this money that we're talking about to a war effort in Ukraine while our conditions here worsen. And so to me, it's just sort of a reminder of how war and how uh, uh, imperialism blows back on those of us right here in the U.S., even in ways that folks may not be aware. Well, absolutely. And what you see now is that the U.S., which certainly after World War II for a time had a certain level of prosperity, you know, could hold itself out to the world as, uh, you know, a credible model of development um, and therefore had some moral authority, as you say, in the world. It's basically lost that moral authority, certainly after the collapse of the Soviet Union and all these crazy wars the U.S. has gotten us involved in and declining living standards here, declining uh, democratic norms in this country. Really, we are nothing. What, what, what we have left is a naked military power. That's it. That's all the U.S. has anymore to wield uh, you know, power throughout the world, and that's what it's using because it has nothing else. And um, that's a scary proposition. And I do hope that the American people will wake up to that. I think they're going to have to because I think you are going to see more and more deprivation in this country, more and more homelessness, more and more crime. And at some point that's going to blow up politically. Um, And I think the U.S. government is doing the least it can do to try to prevent that. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Dan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about new protests happening inside of Haiti. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Jamima Pierre, uh, Haiti, America's coordinator for the Black Alliance for Peace. Dr. Pierre, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Dr. Pierre, in recent days, we have seen thousands of people across Haiti take to the streets demanding the resignation of Prime Minister Ariel Henry and uh, also uh, protesting the serious uh, social and economic crisis that is worsening inside the country. And I was hoping you could help us understand just what conditions have been like that have led to this latest round of uh, protests uh, that we're seeing in Haiti, which seem to be part and parcel of uh, mobilizations we've been seeing for seemingly a couple of years at this point. 
Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you I'm glad you point out that these protests are not new because, you know, when Haiti gets in the news, it's only, you know, when it's too much. And so they have to cover it and they make it seem like these are spontaneous protests. But Haitians have been protesting the lack of democracy, the lack of sovereignty for a long time. And primarily because the U.S. has completely destroyed the Haitian state. Um, you know, ever since 2004, the Haiti has been under the control of the, uh, the core group in the United Nations. Uh, and the U.S. Um, and the the worst of it is since 2010, where the U.S. Um, imposed this PHTK Fet uh, Calais party, which Michel Martelly and then Jovenel Moïse, and then after Moïse's assassination, then you have um, Ayo Henri, who was actually imposed by the U.S. and the core group onto the people. So what's happened is a perfect crisis because what it does is, is it, Haiti is um, then then made to be called a failed state, right? So the, the, the Western um, folks can come in, destroy the state completely, and then turn around and say, well, see, these people cannot rule themselves. And so what Haitians are protesting lately, the latest set of protests are around uh, a, a, an increase in gun violence, which people here will call the gang violence, whereas I think the, the real gangs of Haiti are, are the core group in the U.S. Um, but the gun, gun violence um, uh, coming from um, uh, young men who have been armed, um, and people always have to ask themselves, if Haiti is so poor, how are these young men getting having access to thousands and thousands and dollars, thousands of dollars worth of arms and ammunition to go in? And in the past, you know, a lot of these young men have been used by the elite to go in and, and settle scores with, with their enemies and so on. But it's been quite a number, uh, the, the, the number of arms coming to Haiti has really, um, uh, really uh, quadrupled. Well, more than quadrupled. It's, it's grown exponentially. And so then, you know, you have that, you have the insecurity, but then you also have, you know, there's a global economic crisis. You have the gas, you know, gas prices are going up. We don't have a government that works. You have a public government that's being held up by, um, by the U.S. And so, He's not in any position to do anything to help the people. He's in position to basically hold the line so that the U.S. and, and the business, the Western business community can can pilfer um, whatever resources Haiti has. And so people are, you know, desperate. And it makes me sad because what ha happens is like Haitians always have to be on the streets protesting just to have the basic necessities. And the reason they're in the street protesting because this has been done by U.S. and, and Western imperialism. And the fact that they are protesting at this particular time uh, after the central bank reported that inflation had reached 29 percent, uh, a 10-year high, um, the mobilizations, uh, these protests actually coincided with some very important historical struggles against the very same forces. So I'm wondering if you can make those connections for us, uh, Dr. Pierre. Well, so, so part of it is, you know, one of the, the key things is gas prices, right? So once you have gas prices go up, everything go up. And I, I want to point out, too, you know, one of the key things that, that the U.S. wanted to get rid of was the Petro-Caribbean program that Hugo Chavez of Venezuela has set up for Caribbean countries to basically give them free gas. You know, I mean, it's like a, a gas of like loan where you can get free gas from Venezuela, uh, not ba practically free, because it's like, I think, 1% interest, and you didn't have to pay it back to like uh, for 25 years, and then use the profits from selling the gas for development, you know, for the, the country's development. And from the moment that René Preval, who was president, who signed the deal in 2006, I think, or 2007, the U.S. has been pushing um, um, to get rid of the Petrochemical program. Um, and so... 
you know, up until so Haiti had subsidized gas, and 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 we know that you know the Petrocal refunds, which are two or three billion, were stolen by the the PHDK, the Martelly government that the U.S. put in place, um, which is why you had the a ground of protest in 2018, 2019, because we're, people are asking, where are these funds that were set for development? And now, you know, you put Ariel Henry, Jovenel Moïse and Ariel Henry completely stopped the Petro-Carib um, program, which is, what the, which is what the U.S. wanted because they wanted, they didn't want Haiti to get support from Venezuela. And so now, you know, Haiti basically has to be, you know, in the market, in the oil market with everybody else, the global oil market. And we know gas here, like I live in California, our gas prices last month were $7.50 a gallon. Right? And so so then, you know, when when the West catches a cold, we get the flu. And so that's really what's happening. It's just the global inflation is really impacting Haiti even harder because we don't have a government. We have a public government. And, and it's allowing Haitians to bear the brunt of, 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 of what's happening around the world. And so, you know, the, the crisis in Haiti is a crisis of imperialism. I always say this, and it's a, it's a state that's been captured by the Western imperialists. And, and until we get that, that boot off of our neck, you know, things won't be better. And, and you know, I, and I hope people know, because, you know, one of the things that, that came out that folks need to remember is that the Haitian Revolution began, that we just celebrated the anniversary at the beginning of the Haitian Revolution, August 21st, 1791. And, you know, Haitians have been struggling for a while. And so, you know, the protests are timely because, you know, it marks the beginning of a revolution. And I think people are seeing it that way. And they're they're out to get rid of this Western imperialist imperialism once and for all. And they know that their problem is not just, you know, the food prices. It's this government that's been put in place by the Westerners. Absolutely. And I appreciate you raising uh, that historical point that Haiti has, in fact, uh, excuse me, in fact, marked the uh, 231st anniversary of the 1791 slave uprising that, you know, uh, triggered the revolution that ultimately led to Haiti's independence. And to your point about inflation, I mean, according to some media reports I was looking at, Haiti's central bank has reported that uh, inflation has reached 29 percent and has hit a 10 year high. And so uh, I agree that just sort of the the sort of waves, the ripple effects of the, um, uh, frankly, I think, dire global economic situation definitely being visited upon Haiti here in a serious, serious way. And, you know, it seems like a lot of what we're seeing happening in Haiti right now, Dr. Pierre, in the most recent period is still uh, uh, emanating from the uh, assassination of Jovenel Moïse uh, with the Ariel Henry sort of coming to power after uh, what felt like a a merry-go-round of different people uh, vying for power. And it has always seemed that Henri is really only in power and given legitimacy because of the support of the U.S. and the West. And so the ongoing political stability inside Haiti is really no surprise in that sense, because, I mean, yet again, uh, uh, Haiti has uh, frankly just not been allowed to sort of have its own sort of real uh, democratic processes take place as, you know, the West and these other imperial powers. Powers um, uh, have inserted their own interest in there over and above uh, the interest of the human beings there in the country. No, you're absolutely right. And what I always say, Haiti is always the training ground for the, the West policies elsewhere. Right. So they try it out on Haiti and, and they try it out on Haiti and then they try it elsewhere. And so in Haiti, you have the perfect storm. Right. You have. 2003, you get France, Canada, and the U.S. meet, and they're like, we need to get rid of their elected president. They come in, they take out Aristide, and then you get the U.N., including Brazil, which led Lula, which led the military wing of the U.N. occupation in 2004. You have a, you, then you have 
So then it doesn't look like it's the U.S. occupying Haiti. It becomes a peacekeeping mission, right? So, so then it's like, you know, so then you have all these soldiers from all over the world coming in to stabilize Haiti. So you get the U.N. to give cover to a U.S.-led coup. And then it seems like they're out there to help Haiti. At the same time, you know, the U.S. can impose its will free, freely, can pick, can pick presidents, can, you know, we don't have, we hardly have any elected presidents. We haven't had legislative elections in Haiti. We haven't had presidential elections. Ariel Henry is not an elected. He's a prime minister and prime ministers are um, appointed. And he was, Jovenel Moïse appointed him at, because Martelly and the U.S. told him to appoint Ariel Henry. And people have to know Ariel Henry was used in 2004. And that's why I brought up 2004. After the U.S. took Aristide and flew him to Africa, they the U.N. came in and the core group decided to have a council of elders, of Haitian elders, supposedly to make it seem more legitimate that Haiti, supposedly Haiti was ruling itself. And Ariel Henry was part of the Council of Elders. So they know him and they've used him. He's allowed himself to be used in that capacity. So I think, you know, all of this matters in terms of, you know, when we get stories about Haiti, the new media never talks about the coup d'etat. They never talk about um, um, the imposition of uh, the, the, the right wing PHTK devaluerist party. They never talk about the fact that the U.S. knows who's behind the assassination of Moise. They have all the evidence, but they haven't done anything to assassinate it. Um, I mean, to 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 convict anyone. I mean, to do to find out who uh, to to prosecute fully people. They also know where the guns are coming from. They're coming from Florida. The U.S. knows. But then now you have protests. The other thing I wanted to point out is the U.S. The Biden administration has been steadily deporting Haitians. Um, since the very beginning, since he got into office. And I have to say, since and, and, and since September, since the late September, when we saw those terrible images of the Texas Rangers, you know, looking like they're whipping Haitians, the Biden administration has deported 30,000 plus Haitians to Haiti. And they're deporting people till this day, despite this crisis. And we ha- I'll just let your uh, audience wonder, you just remember, there are 100,000 Ukrainians coming in here, right, into the U.S. And so, and so part of that is, you're deporting Haitians. They're going into this system. They're creating this crazy mess. And then, and then, and now at the same time, you have them saying, now you have these representatives, these um, congressional black member um, caucus, congressional black caucus members saying, well, we need to help Haiti without really understanding that the situation in Haiti is one caused by, by U.S. imperialism and, and, and the misery of the people. And so this, and the misery also like the, the deep racism. And we have to talk about imperialism as also a form of racism because there is the, the way that Haitians are treated by the U.S., by the West, um, by destroying their state, but also the way they represent them in the media, you know there's a deep anti-blackness there when it comes to Haiti. And I and and I and I hope that we we really think about that, what this this means, because Haitians are really paying for the fact that they they upended the Western world with their revolution, but because they're black, right? And we have to remember that. And and, and it's just it just makes me so angry because I'm more than sad. I'm just angry that you know, we can't really get rid of U.S. imperialism the way we want to. And I'm hoping that this set of protests will lead to something much bigger where we really get rid of the West, get throw these people out of the country once and for all. 
Definitely. And, you know, I wanted to uh, dig a bit deeper, if we could, Dr. Pierre, on this issue of these uh, armed groups of young men that you're speaking to who are being armed with these weapons flowing uh, uh, into Haiti, you know, the the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and yet um, all of these weapons. And uh, my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that the Haitian government and and the Haitian police, you know, um, sort of present as though they're concerned about the uh, different armed groups, but the feeling uh, seems to be among some that there may be some level of collaboration or collusion between these armed groups and uh, uh, police agencies. I mean, from your perspective, what is the reality of that? Do we really know sort of uh, what the dynamic is there as it pertains, you know, to uh, the police agencies and these armed groups? Or how do you see that relationship? Yeah, I, I well, I, I do think, you know, one of the things uh, we, you know, those of us who talk about it, you know, there's always a crisis in Haiti right before the UN has to make a decision whether or not to renew its mandate in Haiti. And this happened again. And and first, I want to say that Ayo Henri is directly implicated in the murder of Jovenel Moïse. The, everyone knows this. Um, he was on the phone with the killer, um, out, you know, minutes after the, the 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 assassination happened. And the U.S. knows this. And so they, they know this. The U.S. knows where the guns are coming from. Like, the, the truth is, there are five ports, I think about five ports in Haiti. They're all owned by individuals of the oligarch, members of the oligarchy. So the only way the guns get into Haiti is through these ports. So we know there's always been collusion between the Haitian elite, the Haitian um, police, and the Haitian government, um, and and some of these young people that they arm, and you know now there are the protests. You see the Haitian police, which seems which says that they they are they don't have the means to capture the 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 the, the young men with the guns, but they can they have the means to shoot, and they've killed how many protesters have they killed in the past few days, right? So they have you know the U.S. gives them their arms. They can go in and shoot at protesters when they want, and so they they must be in collusion. Some of these some of these um, um, armed gangs are in are in neighborhoods right near the U.S. embassy, right near you know the 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 the, the, the Haitian center of of of, um, of the Haitian political centers, and so they know who they are. They know they know how they get their arms and so on. And I do think it's it's a it's a manufactured crisis. Because then it, it fits the narrative that allows these people to come in and run Haiti. And I have to say, people always wonder, well, Haiti's so poor, why would the U.S. want to go in and, and, and hold on to it? Haiti is very strategically important for the U.S. Haiti, the U.S. has always wanted Haiti. In fact, in the late 1800s, they sent Frederick Douglass to go in and try to negotiate this island so that they can have a, a base there for Haiti. Um, and, and my mother will tell you, you know, she was just in Haiti, um, you know, in, in, in the countryside, you people are coming in. The planes are loaded. First of all, planes going to Haiti. People are still going to Haiti. A lot of white businessmen are going to Haiti. People are making money. And in the countryside, you have all these foreigners going in and showing it papers and telling the, 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 the farmers that the land no longer belongs to them. And so you have a, a major theft going on with the Western business elite, where you have Ariel only signing out mining contracts. And, and we know this is about capitalism, right? So there are all these minerals and stuff under the land, oil, gold, and minerals under, under Haiti's land. And so contracts are being going. Um, they've been um, drilling, oil drilling on the coast of Haiti, southern coast of Haiti, where the farmers have gone out to the sea and asked these people, why are you, what are you doing out in our, in our waters? And they've been shot at. 
And so this is the story that's not being told, that there's like there's a pilfering of Haitian resources under the cover of supposed, you know, this gang, gang violence and, and so on. So you keep you keep in the news that there's violence and protests in Haiti. Meanwhile, the white Western businesses and individuals are getting rich off of Haiti's resources. Yeah. And, you know, Jackie, this is something that is a constant when it comes to how Haiti is discussed here in the United States and in the West. And I think Dr. Pierre is right. I mean, we only see it. It's framed to us as I mean, basically like a, a group of savages just tearing each other apart, tearing their country apart because they're not able to govern, which, you know, justifies the intervention by the U.S., the West, the U.N. and things like this, when in reality, we're looking at a country that has basically been punished for a few centuries for having the audacity to, to overthrow uh, their enslavers. And so as such, I think that is important context for how we look at Haiti and also uh, the basis for how we show solidarity. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Pierre, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, August 25th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call if by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., you can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday, and we're streaming for your viewing pleasure live on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Neffa Freeman, <clears throat> coordinating committee member with the Black Alliance for Peace, organizer with Pan-African Community Action, and host of Voices with Vision on WPFW 89.3 FM right here in Washington, D.C. Neffa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. 
Absolutely. And, you know, Nepa, if there's one thing we can count on from the corporate owned media here in the United States is for them to ignore uh, the military violence of U.S. imperialism on the African continent. And uh, what I'm speaking to specifically in this instance are recent U.S. airstrike kills in uh, Somalia, where at least 20 people died as a result. Uh, And, uh, you know, usually as we see this. This is done within the context of uh, anti-terrorism actions, in this case against uh, the militant group Al-Shabaab, which is an Al-Qaeda-linked militant group there in Somalia. Uh, All of these strikes, all three of the uh, most recent strikes have taken, excuse me, all of the most recent strikes have taken place um, under U.S. since uh, Joe Biden approved the redeployment of hundreds of special forces troops inside Somalia, which happened back in May, which uh, kind of reversed a drawdown from Somalia that was implemented uh, under Donald Trump. Now, there's this uh, UK-based monitor group named Air Wars, and according to them, uh, U.S. forces have bombed Somalia at least 16 times during the Biden administration, killing between 465 and 545 suspected militants. On March 13th alone, there was a joint uh, a drone airstrike between Somalia and the U.S. that killed 200 uh, alleged militants. And of course, there's sort of the typical issues in terms of the U.S. lying about uh, uh, civilian deaths and things like that, and all uh, completely uh, beyond and outside the consciousness of the American people because it's simply not reported. We don't get these blazing headlines about uh, the U.S. airstrikes in Somalia. My question to you, Nefa, is why do you think that is? Why does the U.S. continue to try to hide what imperialism is doing on the African continent? Oh, well, I mean, I think we, we it, it's, you're kind of asked maybe a devil's advocate question a little bit, but I think, you know, we, it should be evident to us there's a sizable African population, commonly known as African Americans. I don't really put that hyphen on my name, but they, and even those who don't identify with Africa in, in a conscious sense, there's a subliminal, you know, understanding that we are from Africa. And if it was known that the United States was carrying out this type of death and destruction on the continent of Africa, it could foster up some of that. It can awaken, awaken an awareness, particularly when we look at the fact that it, it mirrors the type of aggression that's leveled against us here in the communities by the police. Um, and so, that's one. That's just one reason, and it's just in general. It it has to be seen as um, having some kind of benevolent presence. It's like you said before. It's it's uh, characterized as some fight against terrorism, but it's an ongoing. You know, especially after you know the United States has declared they was not going to end these forever wars. Well, this is a forever war. It's one of those forever wars. It's been a long time since the United States hasn't been bombing Somalia. I think that was one a statement in one of the articles about this. No, maybe not in that one, but it's been years since it hasn't been drone bombing Somalia. Um, and so if people understood that, then they would be like, well, you know, and, and some of the times we, we ask often, they would start asking questions if they understood that this was taking place regularly. And they would start asking, what good is this doing? Are you, you know, is, is there this perpetual and uh, a never-ending fight against terrorism, or is there some kind of root cause that could be addressed? How is this helping uh, the people on the continent? We also have to—they um, have to avoid, and then imposing this as a direct answer uh, to your question also, is that 
is they always report things as, you know, in terms of casualties, limited number of casualties or whatever. You know, there's always this discrepancy about casualties, and we should be questioning these things. We also call also call into question how the U.S. determines that some something's an enemy combatant or a militant or something like that. Someone is militant because I mean I'll be frank. If you know I, if I was in Somalia and the presence of the U.S. was the way it was, I would be opposed to it. And I don't know what that would do in terms of what I would be doing in terms of, you know, how my opposition would be expressed. But if I found myself in some in any situation where my, I might not even be al-Shabaab, but in any kind of situation where I'm standing up against that and I get killed by the U.S., they're going to call that an enemy combatant. And so, you know, and so anyway, these types of things have to be kept under the radar. They can't. And once you start untangling, pulling the threads apart, and then people will see how how you know diabolical this whole thing is in terms of what the U.S. U.S. engagement in Somalia, um, and then also question U.S. involvement in Africa as a whole. It's never been anything positive, um, and in this instance, it also mirrors. We start questioning other things like the Libya and you know all these things where the U.S. has had direct military intervention and it has amounted to worsening uh, situations. Yeah. And, you know, all of this uh, continual bombing uh, of Somalia has added up to, according to the UK based monitor group Air Wars, uh, Somalia has been bombed at least 16 times during Biden's tenure, just the two years that Biden has been president, killing between 465 and 545, quote unquote, uh, suspected militants. Um, On March 13th, a joint U.S. drone and Somali airstrike killed 200 alleged militants. Since 2007, the U.S. military has carried out 260 actions in Somalia. And I think this raises the question of AFRICOM, the uh, importance of AFRICOM. And I think Somalia might be the prime example of why we constantly bring up AFRICOM as a destabilizing force on the continent. So could you speak to AFRICOM's role in this ongoing uh, just absolute utter destruction of Somalia and and why they are doing that. Why is the U.S. and AFRICOM so invested in maintaining instability and destruction in this country? So it's a lot there. So all the drones, the U.S. drone wars, any kind of military um, operation in Africa is under the uh, auspices of AFRICOM, the U.S. Africa Command. So, you know, all of that is AFRICOM, even if it's not the people aren't, you know, who are manning or, or uh, operating the drones are not even in the country, because a lot of that happens, too. They're in someplace else, some, you know, maybe not even in Africa sometimes. Um, and so, you know, that's what, that's the role of AFRICOM. AFRICOM is also training uh, U.S. military command and uh, uh, sends special operations forces, and that's one of the things that they, that Trump was scaling back that a lot of people have like to hate on Trump and all that. And I, don't, you know, I don't care for him either. It's, all of this is irrelevant to individuals. It's about the system that's in place that's maintained, no matter whether it's a Democratic or Republican, whether it's an unlikable person, you know, in the White House or a likable person like like the uh, seemingly likable person on, on the surface, like Barack Obama, that 
Um, this is a system that's in place and these operations carry out in place. The Horn of Africa is very pivotal. And then and, Af- and Somalia should be seen as part of the Horn of Africa, Somalia, Eritrea, and Ethiopia. Not only is that region, in particular Somalia, have oil and they find things like oil in there. And, all, you know, all over Africa, there's so many. Africa is rich in minerals. So that's always part of it. But there's also these strategic um, aspects in terms of the region, uh, that being all the way on the east of Africa, and there being choke points, that, uh, what they call choke points, where, like in the Red Sea, where they where ships and things like that um, all have to get, you know, they have to pass through in order for trade routes and all that to, to work. And for Somalia, which is, I think, it's the one that's right on that, then they have to, they want to be able to control that. It's right off of Djibouti, right now, Djibouti, where the U.S. has one of their largest uh, and oldest uh, military bases and see, used to be a CIA um, outpost headquarters in Djibouti um, off of Africa, in Africa. And so there's a whole lot of interest there in terms of controlling the region, um, in terms of also destabilizing, if it served the role of Somalia and destabilizing Eritrea or trying to destabilize Eritrea and invading uh, invading Eritrea because they didn't want Eritrea to to, uh, to establish its or exercise its self-determination, which it has been doing. Um, and so they actually even used Somalia to try to invade Eritrea uh, along with the, the to, uh to TPLF and Ethiopia. And so there's all of these different things um, that happen. And and the Al-Shabaab, oh, this is another point that might be a little bit off your question, but it may be to something that Sean had said earlier, how uh, um, Al-Shabaab is defined or characterized. People will, will hear adjectives like Al-Qaeda linked, which, you know, is something. It, it speaks to something about Al-Shabaab. But much more telling is the history of Al-Shabaab, how it emerges. It didn't emerge out of Al-Qaeda, but it's linked whenever these groups will link with each other, whatever that means. Um, but their origins are more telling than anything. And what their uh, reaction or response, to, or I would say reactions in that sense, and they are emerging out of U.S. destabilization of the of Somalia directly. And that's what that's the creation of Al-Shabaab um, and coming out of a more militant expression of the U, uh, of the uh the Islamic, uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the, the formation, uh, uh, council or court, I can't remember now, I'm, I'm, my mind is, but anyway, so the, the, they were actually governing Somalia and the U.S. didn't like that because they weren't, you know, you know, they were exercising a degree of determined self-determination and stability, so they overthrew that government. And then um, Al-Shabaab emerged as a, as a response to that. There's no response to that. And, you know, I'm not saying that it's it's a great, you know, organization. It's not carrying out things. But the point is the United States atrocities are just as bad, and they're no more concerned with human life or, you know, stable stability in that country than any, any place else than anything else. Um, and so those, if, you know, if I answered your question, is there are those numerous reasons why the U.S. is, is um, in Somalia. Definitely. And I believe that's the Islamic Courts Union uh, in in Somalia that that was operating there. And, you know, not only is uh, U.S. imperialism operating on the African continent in a military sense, Neff, of course, there's also a diplomatic side to this as well, which we saw just earlier this month as uh, U.S. Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken made, uh, I believe, uh, a trip to three different uh, countries on the African continent, uh, South Africa, Rwanda, 
excuse me, and the Congo. And in doing so, sort of laying out um, Washington's plans for the continent and making it very clear that uh, the U.S. government intended to try to scuttle or slow. And I think uh, to them, they would much prefer to completely remove the presence of Russia and China uh, from the continent in a number of ways. And it's interesting, uh, during that time, uh, Blinken gave a speech saying that, quote, too often African nations have been treated as instruments of other nations' progress rather than the authors of their own. Well, he's not lying about that, at least, and we can definitely <laughs> include the U.S. in that number. And there was even a, uh, a policy paper that went out ahead of Blinken's speech that uh, saw China's role in the region as, quote, an arena to challenge the rules-based international order, advance its own narrow commercial and geopolitical interests, and weaken U.S. relations with African peoples and governments. And so it, it just seems 100% clear, Nefa, that the U.S. intends to use the African continent as yet another battlefield in its new Cold War against uh, uh, Moscow and Beijing. And though, you know, it's coming with this nice sounding language. I mean, some of the things that Anthony Blinken is saying could, could almost be interpreted as advocating for self-determination. But when you understand that he's there representing um, the global hegemon in the United States with its, you know, centuries of history with the African continent, then it's clear that, you know, their uh, intentions are uh, uh, less than uh, magnificent to say the very least. So how do you see the U.S. sort of trying to utilize uh, Africa in this new Cold War reality as it continues to try to uh, strike at uh, Russia and China in different ways? Yeah, um, yeah, that it was it was Anthony Blinken that visited there, but also um, Linda Thomas Greenfield, right. the U.N. ambassador, and went to Ghana. And, and all of it was around this kind of this talk that makes it seem like they're there to help Africa not be exploited, but the, the history and the legacy of the exploitation of Africa is through Western Europe and the United States. They've always been on the side, the wrong side of history when it comes to anything regarding Africa's self-determination and liberation. And I do believe that's not, I think we should see Africa and um, in terms of, I, I don't know if it's, uh, I wouldn't necessarily, I might not characterize it exactly what you're saying, well, maybe not that I wouldn't, it's just that I might be more clear. Africa is uh, pivotal to the type of competition, global competition, that the U.S. is trying to exercise against China and Russia. Right. Um, because of the investments and large investments that, you know, that uh, in China has and increasingly Russia and their relationships and, and agreements and different projects with, with Africa that are really primarily on a um, level of economics. China nor uh, China nor even Russia with some minimal military presence has militarized the continent like Western Europe and uh, particularly France and and like the United States I mean that is what they have done before even China even uh, before they even saw this emerging saw China as an emerging threat on the continent they were already doing this yeah and so um, and even before Africa, I mean, we could see it even, you know, the, the selling arms. And so it may not have been direct militarization, but the militarization by selling small arms to groups like in the Western African sense of Liberia and Sierra Leone 
not, and, and fostering all kind of turmoils. Um, you could see, you know, so that, that kind of stuff has been the United States' white means of destabilizing the continent of Africa. The, the role that the United States is playing, they're finding themselves in this, you know, role um, and uh, in this uh, a diminishing role and their threatened role in terms of their trade, their access to the raw, the, the types of deals that give the access to raw minerals are being threatened because... China and uh, particularly China have more have basically bilateral relationships. They're not unilateral. They're not they're not uh, gangsterish with using the multinational financial institutions for foreign investment, their farming investment, and all that. And so they really they really don't know what else to do. They're trying to kind of add a loss of loose and waning this influence that they've had, this dominance that they've had. And so that was part of that was really the. It, I won't say part of it. It was the, the reason for Blinken and Greenfield's trips to Africa. And, and But what they don't understand, and it was interesting that a lot of, I don't know if you all have talked about it on the show before, probably because it's been a minute. When he went to South Africa um, and he's meeting, it was like a press conference with the South African diplomat, um, Naledi Pandora. And and he, you know, I think that's when he was even making maybe the quote that you were talking about, but um, that you meant that you read. But she spoke. She, I mean, she clearly made it clear that the even U.S. and Western Europe have been the ones that have been guilty of you know exerting the influence over Africa, and actually even talked about the fact that, and this is something the U.S. does not get. It's something they can't really grasp. Is the French. Uh, geopolitical outlook and worldview and perspective that other countries have that's not the same as their own. And even historical relationships, I mean, the historical relationship between, like we had alluded to before, between China and Russia and the African continent is completely different than what the United States has been. I mean, everything, all the way, you know, particularly during the independence and uh, independence movements and de- what really was a decolonization movement from the from the sixties, fifties into the seventies, into the eighties, has the China in particular and Russia when it was the Soviet Union, not now, capitalist Russia now, there's still different relationships, um, was actually helping the liberation struggles. They were actually helping train them and fund them and giving, and they were actually doing more than just military. It was also giving scholarships to, to Africans so they could study school and go to college on, in, in Russia and in China. I mean, this is what was happening. The United States wasn't doing these kind of things. And, 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 and if they did, when they, once they started doing it under things like the USAID, and it was came later, and it was they, they're trying to uh, westernize people and create that, um, actually develop the, the elite, ruling elite class, the bourgeois class that we see um, that help foster neocolonialism. The problem, and I'm not, and I don't, I don't want to make it seem like the relationships and the presence of China on the continent or any, or Russia on the continent is all about, you know, helping Africa. They have their own political interests too. And and those interests will be met on that. But the, the the central problem, if there are any issues regarding um, regarding the deals and how China's presence on the continent of Africa, it's because of neocolonialism. In other words, uh, what I'm saying when I say that is that they there has been developed an elite class of Africans on the continent of Africa that are that help this you know make it seem as though because they're capitalists, they're not. 
you know, socialists, you know, people, they, they, they will make sure that you're a socialist country. They will overthrow you and they will do anything else. So you, now you have elite classes running things that help facilitate and do the, accept the loans from the IMF and the World Bank and comply with the structural adjustment programs and the, you know, and the foreign investment and the austerity and all that kind of stuff, the privatization that happens on the continent. And if they're the ones cutting the, the trade deals also with the lead, with a, and in Russia, then you have something that's not being done in the interest of the people. If you change that leadership, if you change even that orientation, that structure development, then you would have a different relationship with China and Russia because those relationships are bilateral and they're not, you know, and, you know, they would just deal with, do with whatever, whatever kind of deal or relationships are cut or agreements are, are created. But the U.S. doesn't do that and Western Europe doesn't do that. They impose. They don't make agreements and they don't, you know, work with you bilaterally. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252-11320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Nefa Freeman. And if I want to swing back uh, to what we were talking about um, a moment ago, specifically zeroing in on Linda Thomas Greenfeld, who, and you're correct, she was uh, on the African continent doing her own sort of tour around the same time as Anthony Blinken. And while in uh, Uganda, I believe speaking in Kampala, the capital city, um, after a meeting, of course, with uh, President Yoweri Museveni, someone who's quite valuable to Washington, on the African continent, uh, she said, quote, countries can buy Russian agricultural products, including fertilizer and wheat. If a country decides to engage with Russia where there are sanctions, then they are breaking those sanctions. We caution countries not to break those sanctions because then they stand the chance of having actions taken against them. So this is Linda Thomas Greenfield, a uh, 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 U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, the third black person to hold that position and the second black woman to hold that position. And here she is on the African continent, basically like scolding and threatening um, African uh, governments to not act in their own interest, be that dealing with uh, Russia or any other government that they deem is uh, appropriate to deal with. And we talk a lot, Nefa, about the black misleadership class uh, uh, within the U.S. sort of domestically. But I mean, certainly that happens on the global stage as well. I mean, we can also look at folks like Lloyd Austin, the head of the, the, the Pentagon. So we're supposed to be proud that there's a black man serving as the finger on the trigger of the U.S. war machine. You know what I mean? And so it just feels like an example of how um, this system, this imperialist system, this racist system will weaponize uh, black folks and other uh, uh, people from poor working and oppressed groups to uh, basically serve as a cover for the white supremacy that is inherent 
to uh, uh, imperialism. But, I mean, when we look at we were just talking about, you know, uh, uh, what the U.S. is doing militarily in Africa. I don't think that, you know, the blackness of Green Thomas Greenfeld or Lloyd Austin is going to make the victims of those drone strikes feel any better because the person who did it was of African descent. You know what I mean? And so it's just just sort of cynical way that this system will um, use uh, and weaponize people's identity. Uh, to basically carry on uh, the same old exploitation. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and also, the um, Lord Austin just was—I think he was on the continent of Africa too—because they were also swearing in a transfer power of a new African commander. That was just last week or a couple of weeks ago, um, and and he's black. You know, the transfer from Stephen Townsend to ever he's the general first. Class, you know, I'm blanking on his name, but they were making a whole big deal out of it before. The first who he's chosen, I, I should remember this person's name, but I don't. He, you know, he, and they, you know, how he went to whatever kind of military academies and and served this and that and all that. And so they're really doing this. It's interesting because it's also uh, it's it, these things are an attempt to do to also uh, Americanize the African population here. I say African. I'm talking about black people here. Some people just say African-American or whatever. I just say African. And to make us identify more with America and American interests and even muddy the waters when it comes to what um, what our relationship to Africa is or should be. And so that even Thomas Greenfield, when she was went to, when she was, I don't know which one, whether she was in Uganda or Ghana making these, making her comments, but she actually talked with this sort of identification because he had ever done she has been to Africa before and served in some role, capacity role. But she was talking, sort of muddying the the connections of Africans here, referring to, you know, the connection of black people to Africa, but still doing it in a way that gives legitimacy to the U.S. role um, in Africa and the U.S. role in the world, period, really, you know. So these are kind of things that they're doing. I mean, I, I knew that you were uh, ahead of me. That you, I think you were speaking with Jamima Pierre of the Haitian American Sea of Black Lines for Peace. And I don't know if she mentioned, I didn't hear the whole thing, but I don't know if she mentioned they're also talking about uh, thinking of an envoy to go to Haiti along with Paracom. And that the U.S. reps, they're thinking this all black women, the CPC, the Congressional Black Caucus. All black women represent the Democratic Party, represent to be part of this envoy. And so, this whole issue, like, with this strategy, you know, like you pointed out, of using and exploiting uh, identity politics, so to speak, and race identity politics, and not talking uh, talking about the intersections regarding class or anything like that. Not, I don't mean talking about them, they can't really address it, they can't really deal with it. It's a very insidious thing that we have to be very careful with. Uh, I think people are really susceptible to that right now. And I think you see it as a counterinsurgency move. It has all kinds of aspects to it, even to the level, and I don't think people probably don't make these connections, but even in the level of Hollywood, Hollywood preparing us for such things like this, movies like the Black Panther coming out. You know, Hollywood kind of primes our psyche for these kind of things. Um, and where they, you know, where they make us subliminally believe um, that the U.S. presence, U.S. presence or U.S. geopolitics uh, in the world is a positive thing. 
Yeah, definitely. And when and when when Linda Thomas Greenfield landed in Ghana, you know, she was talking about how black Americans like Ralph Bunch and Martin Luther King were there to witness the independence of Ghana and talked about Kwame Nkrumah as if he wasn't literally overthrown in a CIA coup. But uh, we've got a caller on the line here. Franny, tell us what's on your mind. Uh, hey, uh, Jackie, Sean and Netfa. Um, good to talk to you. Can you hear me OK? Yeah, you sound great. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I just want I've been thinking about this for a long time. I'll, I'll, it's not a question. It's just a thought that I've been having. So I'm going to try to make it make sense. Um, you know, uh, alternative people, we in the alternative media spheres, we often will say, oh, you know, not that Russia's perfect or China's perfect. And I feel like we're all kind of like it sort of rings apologetic. And I feel like we're all sort of, I do. <laughs> yeah. At base. And I just, I for one am done saying that because I feel like, you know, Russia and China, what they're doing, whatever is bad compared to what the West does, just doesn't even compare. You know, it's like a pea compared to a boulder. So that's what's on my mind. Great show. And uh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much for calling in for any hope to hear from you again soon. And yeah, I definitely hear what you're saying. I mean, it's the sort of thing people say with Russia or China or when talking about, you know, Nicolas Maduro or Venezuela or any of these countries that are, you know, demonized and made enemy states by the U.S. And, you know, I think a part of it, a part of the impulse to do that stems from the fact that these countries and these governments are so demonized by the U.S. and the West, that if you say anything that runs counter to that, even if it's just objectively true, then it's seen as effusive praise or as if you're trying to make these places seem like a utopia and things like that. But that is the depth of propaganda that we're dealing with here in the U.S., to where uh, people have been so uh, uh, soured, uh, to put it one way, on uh, these different countries because of the incessant messaging that we get from this government and its corporate owned media platforms that we almost we have this uh, impulse to like retreat and, and, and qualify and, and hem and haw and all these sorts of things. And I agree with you that we have to, uh, you know, just stand on principle and continue to to say what is true, which, you know, sometimes can be difficult. Particularly if, you know, they're your friends or your family or your loved ones or people that you care about. You don't necessarily want to offend. But I mean, there's there's just so much that there is to correct about the the narrative misrepresentation and outright lies of imperialism that I think we really have to develop a thick skin and be able to really defend our position. But uh, Nefa, I'm curious your thoughts on it. Yeah, I also completely agree with the caller. I, I agree with what you said, too. However, I don't think that's just me. I was the one that did it. But I don't, I don't think what happens for me when especially dealing with uh, China and Africa is that I encounter a lot of Africans on the continent that actually recount some you know, some things that are not necessarily not so great in terms of like work conditions and mm-hmm. and the presence, you know, the you know, different things that are not so great. And so I find myself in China and different China and acknowledging that that um, putting that little caveat in there. Um, but I still don't think I should. I mean, I think the point is, is well taken. I think it's a good point. I, it doesn't help anything for me to put it in, but I, I guess I find myself trying to uh, something that 
Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely hear what you're saying. I mean, and it's true. And the point that you made about that, I think, is accurate. You know, Russia, China, you know, these other countries um, that are involved in the African continent in, in different ways, they're not doing it out of the kindness of their hearts. They're doing it because it's in their national interest in the same way that these African governments are dealing with them because it is in their national interest. And you're right, Nefa, that there are uh, there are contradictions that are inherent to these kinds of partnerships. And there are abuses and things like that that happen as a result. But even still, and I appreciate the way you frame this in terms of how the, the the overarching dynamic of how these deals and agreements and things play out, both historically and in the contemporary sense between countries like China and Russia and with the United States could not be more different, in my opinion. And, and some of the contradictions that happen within that frame, I don't think changes that. But Jackie Lukeman, I'm curious your thoughts. Interesting time because I seem to be always having these kind of conversations where I'm I'm always doing some kind of explaining, providing some historical context, telling people um, when they criticize uh, China or Russia, particularly Russia now because of what's going on in Ukraine um, and uh, my uh, viewpoints on the issue. I'm usually having to push back on them saying things like, oh, well, you're pro-Russia because you work for the Russians, right? (laughs) And it's like that's and, and of course, that's when I pull out my history bag and it's like, yeah, you're never going to say that to me again. (laughs) You're never going to make the mistake, at least not to me, of accusing me of being pro-Russia because of who I work for, because this whole big old long lexicon of history of Russia and China and Cuba and other countries that are uh, have always been fighting imperialism have been in solidarity with people who look like me on the continent fighting for their liberation and have been in solidarity with people who look like us in this country fighting for our liberation. So no, has nothing to do with me working for Sputnik. And I've always had to explain to people that this is not a pro-Russia, pro-China uh, a right. position that we are taking. What we are doing is exactly what you said, Sean. We are stating facts. We are literally stating everything that led up to Russia being provoked, I think quite literally backed into a corner, into responding in Ukraine, how the same thing is being done against China using Taiwan, that the United States and its allies are about to follow the exact same playbook in in Taiwan that they did in Ukraine, that they've done in so many other places. So this is not a pro or anti whatever. And I always end by telling people after I've made their eyes glaze over with all of these facts that they wish they had never you know, provoked me into telling them, I always end with, I will tell you that I am anti one thing. I am an anti-imperialist. And that is what all of these nations and all of the people I organize with have in common. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I just feel like we've been clear from the very beginning that, I mean, we we don't um, agree with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. However, it's 100 percent clear of the context that led up to it. That was not some unilateral decision by Vladimir Putin. And, And something as simple as that is verboten in uh, the United States and in the uh, uh, corporate media to the point to where if you even mention that, 
uh, uh, then you're considered to be a Putin puppet or whatever. And that's just, you know, this whole thing about, oh, you're pro-Russia. Like, that's such BS. Like, what, like, what does that even mean? Like, like, what is that like? So what are you suggesting? And so, like, it, OK, is it pro-Russian when we're on the show, when we're talking to and about political prisoners or when we're talking about racist police terror or when we're talking about, I don't know, the U.S. blockade against Cuba or when we're shooting the breeze about TVs and movies? Like, is there some agreement or contract that we have with the Russian government or Vladimir Putin, the individual that says we can talk about whatever we want as long as we don't criticize uh, uh, him as an individual or any actions of the government? Like, it just makes no sense. And oh, by the way, this always is coming from people who never actually heard of the show. You just make an assumption about what we say because we're on a Russian media network. But if you ask them to actually give you an example, give me an example of when we did or said something that was pro-Russian. Show us where we were, you know, licking the boots of the Kremlin or whatever, but you can't because you don't know anything about the program itself. And no one is obligated to listen to by any means necessary. They're certainly not obligated to agree with what we say. But to uh, suggest that we are, that we have this uh, syncophantic loyalty to the Russian government because we're on a Russian media platform, is just complete garbage. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Nefa Freeman is here. And we have another caller on the line. Keith, tell us what's on your mind. A great show as usual. I have a question for Nefa. Um, I've been to many African countries and, uh, you know, but not recently since China started working within these countries. At the time, it was the World Bank, the IMF the World Food Program, and these were basically extensions of U.S. imperialism. And and you better not grow anything or produce anything that's made in the U.S. and dare compete with us. So therefore, you'll eat Uncle Ben's rice, and we will not send you, uh, we will not buy your rice, and you'll starve to death. So in other words, it's to keep the foot on their throat. So now, here comes China. And I hear people say, the Chinese, and these are Africans in some of these countries, my friends and people that I know, They'll say something like, well, when the British were here, the trains were, were much better. And, um, you know, they put these ugly trains in there and they, they, the Chinese don't, you know, have manners like the Europeans and this, this and that. But what they're not saying is that the Chinese don't put an AFRICOM there with a gun to your head. If you don't like what they want, what they're doing, you can ask, you can say, we don't want you here anymore. They'll leave. They, they may have lent money and, and these kinds of things, but overall, how can you compare what China has done, say, for example, in a place like Ethiopia, dams, bridges, roads, tunnels, uh, hydroelectric, all the stuff that they're putting in there, and makes, which makes Ethiopia one of the few countries that manufactures things outside of South Africa. So my friend from Kenya, she's a lady, I just don't like the Chinese because they're, they're, they don't, they're not as nice as the Europeans uh, were to us. And, 
up. I can't figure these people out. So what does it take for these people to understand that China is not the U.S. They don't have an AFRICOM. So if you don't like them, they'll leave. They're not using uh, duress to keep you as a friend. So I would like your your guests to, to address that. Thank you. Well, thank you, Keith. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. And I tell you what, I wish I wish we had some of those uh, quote unquote ugly trains here in the U.S. I mean, public public transit in this country is a joke, you know. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, because we've been talking about the U.S. military footprint on the African continent. Meanwhile, China has like one base in Djibouti, which, if memory serves, is basically there to help with uh, uh, efforts against piracy. But uh, Neffa Freeman, uh, the question was uh, directed at you. So I'll, I'll go for your comments. Um. It, well, it was. I, I agree with the. I mean, there was a lot besides the question that I agree with. Um, and in fact, I, it, it's not a whole lot of trains on the continent of Africa anyway, so I don't know what, right. where they're talking about. But you, and and he did a better job of outlining the infrastructural development that comes as a result of the uh, Chinese African relationships because I didn't really talk about that. And, and he he actually mentioned more things than I was able to say anything. And so that's part of those bilateral relationships and agreements and the benefits to Africa by, for these things. And like you mentioned before, all these other institutions uh, before, you know, they're, they're still working there. They're, they're really neocolonialism, and that's what they are. They're really, they demonstrate, they characterize neocolonialism on the, the, the World Bank, the IMF, the, you know, all these other, USAID or whatever, the AE programs, all of that is neocolonialism, and that they are about Western foreign investment and, and imposing it. Now, what I got out of it was uh, uh, that I could see from a question was the response of Africans on the continent with this. Uh, about this kind of, the, you know, talking about China and 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 in these negative ways, and it was interesting. I didn't think about it until he, you know, described some of these things. That there are Africans on the continent, particularly you're talking about the elite, who have they've had their relationships. And I don't know, I don't know the people that he may be talking about referring to, but they've had their relationships with the West. They've gone to school in the West, and they're propagandized also by the West. You know, that U.S. propaganda and and British and French propaganda goes all over the place. It doesn't just go into their uh, into their countries, and so they've always with the Western, the European, uh, the propagating Eurocentricity and whatnot is all over the place. You know, we run into Africans. I've run into Africans that will say, "I'm French," you know, on the, or identify with France, and they'll be straight up from Leone or something, you know, and, and then just look at this as African, but they don't even want to identify by the with the African country they come from. This is but this is also another thing. The, the West is better in a lot of this. The, the colonialism propagates that. That the West is better and so they already have a predisposition to decry anything that's this threatening to the West, that's anti the West. The West puts that propaganda out, just like they propagandize us in the US. With this they propagandize the Africans on the continent or anywhere else. Jackie Lukman, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, whenever I, I hear people um, uh, have this criticism, particularly of, you know, China uh, in Africa, uh, on the continent of Africa, it's usually, you know, in the context of, of racism and they'll cite uh, some individual uh, businesses that are discriminating against uh, Africans, you know, hiring Africans and that type of thing. But they never point out the things that the Chinese government, the Communist Party of China does when they find out 
what is going on. Because I, I, I get the feeling that a lot of people who, and I, I don't want to sound like one of those people who are like, well, you'll know more about the world if you travel because we live in a very capitalist, exploitative society and travel is expensive and a lot of people can't afford to do that. When you do see other countries, though, that does change your perspective on how small and insignificant the United States actually is in the rest of the world compared to the the enormity of uh, life and society in the rest of the world. So I, I get this feeling that people like believe that that China and, and sort of by extension, Russia have these like all seeing eyes all over the world, wherever their interests are, and they see everything that's going on and they're just sitting back chuckling, raking in the money, you know, watching their their minions exploit the African people. No, y'all, that's the United States. <laughs> that's the U.S. and that's the former colonists, the French and the Belgians and the Germans and so on. But but whenever people talk about uh, uh, the 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 uh, uh, incidents of issues uh, with individual Chinese businessmen or, you know, something like that. They never raise the issue of the response to those incidents that have actually happened where the Chinese Communist Party have jailed those people, like literally thrown people in jail for exploiting workers uh, in Africa or have, you know, shut down their businesses and and that type of thing. So there's always uh, in this um, expression of uh, propagandization that we're hearing from some people on the continent against China and against Russia, there's that typical strain of of the U.S. kind of <laughs> blueprint of not telling the whole story to prove a point about, you know, who's exploiting whom on the continent, when really the, the, the exploiters are absolutely the U.S. and its allies on the continent, Sean. Definitely. And, you know, not to make too uh, hard of a pivot here at NEFA, but I was actually just looking at this uh, article that was saying that rent in the United States has hit a record high for the 17th month in a row. And so if we're talking about different systems, you compare that to a country like China, which uh, uh, ended extreme poverty and has lifted millions of people out of poverty and things like that. I mean, you know, but we're told that uh, Beijing has the government, you know, that's, uh, you know, devilish and and, and it goes against the so-called uh, international rules based order and things like that, which, of course, is just a dynamic where Washington makes the rules and everyone else follows the order. And so the ongoing refusal of this uh, government and its ruling class to address even the most basic of uh, uh, material concerns for millions of its own people, whether it's rent, whether it's student loan debt, whether it's reproductive rights, whether it's something um, as uh, foundational as uh, the right to vote, something that we're told to uphold and, and, and cherish in this country as being ruthlessly attacked in a frankly racist campaign that the Democrats just kind of uh, shrugged off, basically. I mean, they pretended to do something about it. But see, you know, uh, what we've all discussed here today Today, Nefa, just shows me as ever that whether we're uh, talking about what's happening 
on the African continent, sort of the broader geopolitical situation or what's happening domestically. All these things are connected and will require an organized effort to actually resolve. We have to build a movement, an anti-imperialist working class movement that is going to uh, uh, critically answer all of these problems that the capitalist class actually can't answer because to do so would go against their own material interest. You know what I mean? And I think that we even have a whole lot more in common in terms of uh, worldview with people on the African continent and, and other people, particularly working class, black and brown people, uh, see a lot of things the same. The U.S. relationship with Israel against the Palestinian people is pretty much the same. That's why, why some of these people aren't welcome. And that the people here on the ground are, are seeing through Israel is, is, is an oppressive force. When we, before people would be confused on, oh, is this just, you know, some of this religious war or something like that? But it's not, you know, it's not that. And people are seeing that clearly. Things like, yeah, it's just a whole lot. Things like um, political, their political prisoners in the U.S. I mean, I've never seen such an embrace now, and maybe it's not as widespread as I think it is, but of Black August uh, than I have now. And people on the continent are being able to be exposed to that, particularly with the Internet. Uh, interconnection, interactivity, and all that kind of stuff. There are political prisoners in the U.S. That the U.S. has the longest held political prisoners in the world on the planet, and so uh, people are seeing that the U.S. is not, you know, any kind of beacon or or example of democracy or truth or justice or anything like that. And so some of the the people, we, there are at least other people that that are still confused or, or holding on to selfish interests, like the brother alluded to, either on the continent or here. Um, in the U.S. that, you know, say some, you know, expressing some backwards views based on their interests. But for the, by and large, those are the minority. Most of the people are the struggling people of the world. You know, this you know, student debt thing. I've, I've even was on a conversation with some people on the continent of Africa, and they're like, interest, it's interesting to them, this, this student debt thing. So it's not, forgiving student debt is not even a, and, and what they did was just so insignificant. But what about universal education? You know, that, if you don't do that, then more student debt is going to be incurred. And you can just wipe out student debt, but this, the capitalism is so entangled where you, really, the U.S. government would have to, you know, pass a bill to wipe it all out. They would go against, like you said, the ruling the ruling class. So there really is a lot of stuff they're incapable of doing for the people, um, and it's out of their interest. But uh, that, that shouldn't stop us. we got to, you know— I think we have to arrive at the disposition as unpleasant or intimidating as it might sound that um, a different world has to be brought into being despite those who want to hold on to this old Absolutely. And we should also be clear that a different world is, in fact, possible. You know, we should never let anyone ever tell us that a revolution is impossible in the United States. Revolutions have been happening for centuries. You know what I mean? And uh, I say uh, fairly regularly on the show about how, you know, you show me any progress made by poor working and oppressed people in this country. And I will show you something that seemed impossible until it was made possible by, by people who dared to struggle. And since they dared to struggle, they dared to win. So that's precisely what we have to do. And you're right, Neva. It can be intimidating. It is a Herculean task 
because, you know, literally changing society is no small uh, thing to do. You know what I mean? But see, this is why actually organizing is so important, because that is the process through which we gain a critical mass and bring in all of these people across lines of division and from uh, different elements and segments of the movement and things like that so that we can have this broad, massive effort that can collectively strike at the heart of this white supremacist imperialist system. And this is the only way that we'll achieve it. We won't be able to do this if we're siloed or if we're all shut off from each other and all these sorts of things. No, we'll have to come together. And as George Jackson says, to settle our quarrels, which doesn't mean that we have to agree on each and every single solitary issue. What it means is that we come together on the basis of where it is that we agree and move based on that and then struggle with each other on the contradictions when the oper- when it's opportune because you know it's not always the right time to uh, grapple with certain things if it's going to scuttle the broader thrust and so these are just I think a couple of the uh, uh, more difficult aspects of things that we're going to have to not only be thinking about not only going to continue to speak about and write about and things like that but to actually act on it we're going to have to cross the river while we free the stones, while we feel the stones, because we don't have the luxury of waiting until the storm to build the ship. We have to build it right now. So when there is a moment of revolutionary crisis in this country, we will have the proper organization and movement in place to be able to serve as the tip of the spear that will actually strike at the heart of this empire once and for all. And it can seem scary. But uh, uh, ultimately, you know, it's it's it really actually is incredible what people are capable of when they're in the midst of struggle, things that they never thought that they were able to do, to be able to have a courage that they never thought that they could have, to have a bravery and a steadfastness and to be able to, you know, endure things that they never thought they could because they understand the weight and value and importance of the struggle that they're engaged in. So all of these revolutionaries and great people throughout history that we can name and uphold and we see them as uh, uh, role models and, and figures to aspire to, these are not people that dropped out of the sky. They were shaped by the circumstances of their time and by the conditions of their struggle and they were emboldened and strengthened by that struggle. So these things I'm describing are the very dynamics that made a Malcolm X or an Ashada Shakur or Fidel Castro or any of these revolutionary heroes that we could name. And it's the very same kind of thing that could raise us to that very same level, because we're going to need to be at that level if we're serious about making revolution in the United States and about bringing about a new system in this country that can only be the real solution for all the problems that we discuss so much. And we shouldn't dread it. We should look forward to it. We have to find joy in it because without it, will only remain in this wretched condition. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. One thing, Neffa Freeman, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.